0: Welcome to The Lancet podcast for the issue of March the 24th to the 30th. I'm Richard Lane. March the 24th is World Tuberculosis Day. This week's podcast will detail the latest report from the Stop TB partnership, linked to our lead editorial in this week's issue. Before that, some other highlights this week, and there are plenty of them. The current UK classification of psychoactive drugs into three categories, A, B and C, has poor correlation with expert ratings of the specific harms caused by different drugs and should be changed according to a health policy article. David Nutt and colleagues have devised an evidence-based assessments tool for illicit drugs, which contrasts sharply with its rating in some drugs compared to the conventional ABC system. For example, under the new proposed classification, alcohol, ketamine, tobacco and solvents are ranked more harmful than LSD and ecstasy. Chinese investigators report a preliminary study looking at the feasibility, safety and long-term clinical results of fresh frozen allergenic spinal disc transplantation into human beings. At five years' follow-up, the neurological symptoms of patients had improved from before surgery, no immunoreaction was encountered and there were only mild degenerative changes in the transplanted discs. Anthony Marston from the University of Liverpool in the UK and colleagues outlined the results of two unblinded randomized trials comparing standard with new anti epileptic drugs. Dr. Marston, before we start talking about the details of the standard trials, can you just give us some context here and talk about the issues concerning uh, epilepsy diagnosis and treatment? Epilepsy
1: is actually quite a common condition affecting between about half and 1% of the population at uh, any time and it's uniquely stigmatizing. And although we use the word epilepsy, we're really referring to what is quite a broad heterogeneous group of disorders that have got their own classification. We, we tend to split epilepsies up into two broad groups. One is those that we call the focal epilepsies or the partial epilepsies. Here, people have seizures which start at a, at a focus in the brain and, and spread from there. And at the moment, carbamazepine is recommended as a, as a first-line treatment for these people. The other broad group are those that are said to have a a generalized epilepsy. And at the start of seizures, there's abnormal electrical activity over both sides of the brain uh, right at the start of the seizure. And for this group of patients, guidelines currently recommend valproate as a first-line treatment. And then we have a a third uh, group of patients where we see them right at the start of their epilepsy and we're sure that they've got epilepsy but we're finding it difficult to classify them. For these patients valparate also tends to be used as a first-line treatment.
0: So it's interesting, I mean clearly quite a lot of treatment around but what led you to formulate the Sanad trials?
1: Well over the past 15 to 20 years there's been a lot of work undertaken developing new treatments for epilepsy. There have been a number of drugs licensed really on the basis of quite short trials, which have often made a comparison with placebo. And all the, although these trials meet the requirements of the drug regulatory authorities, they're pretty poor in terms of informing clinical practice. And this is really highlighted by uh, NICE reviews of, of treatments for epilepsy. And the NHS Health Technology Assessment Program commissioned Sanad to compare our standard treatments with new drugs to find out um, which were the most efficacious and which were uh, most uh, cost-effective when used as first-line treatments. So the the comparisons made in Sanad include a comparison with carbamazepine with lamotrigine, gabapentin, tapiramate, and oxcarbazepine for patients diagnosed with having a focal epilepsy, and a second trial which compared valproate, lamotrigine and topiramate for patients with either a generalized epilepsy or patients where a clinician was finding it difficult to classify their epilepsy. And the trial followed patients up for a number of years and measured the success of treatment, so the, the time um, to treatment failure, which is a global measure representing how well a treatment tolerated as well as how, how effective it is. And we also measured how the proportion of patients that entered a longer-term remission from their seizures, but that being a 12-month remission from their seizures, as well as measuring quality of life and uh, health economic outcomes.
0: And in terms of the results of Sanad, fairly clear-cut.
1: For the patients with uh, a focal epilepsy, results show that lamotrigine should now be considered a first-line treatment because it's uh, better tolerated than the standard drug carbamazepine, and is probably just as effective in controlling seizures and the results also show that gabapentin would be a poor choice for these patients uh, because it is less effective and also that pyromate is a poor choice because it's poorly tolerated.
0: So that's an example of the newer drug class being more effective you think?
1: Right. Absolutely so I think this, this is going to have an impact on, on guidelines and uh, uh, future uh, practice for patients with focal epilepsy. For the, for the group of patients where valproate was thought to be the standard treatment, valproate continues to be superior to both lamotrigine and peramate, and it's superior to lamotrigine because it's more effective, and it's superior to, to peramate because it's better tolerated.
0: So some fairly clear results here. How soon could clinical practice be changed by the results of, of these trials, do you think?
1: I think clinical practice will change pretty soon after the publication of the results, and I think these results will be... Imp- incorporated into guidelines uh, fairly quickly.
0: And finally, Dr. Marson, can you just briefly comment on cost effectiveness because that's a relevant issue as well, isn't it, in this field?
1: We did examine cost effectiveness in the study as well as finding that lamotrigine was an effective choice for patients with focal epilepsy. We also found that it was cost effective within the boundaries of what the uh, NHS can afford.
0: Dr. Marson, thanks very much for talking to The Lancet. Thank you. This week's lead editorial highlights three main challenges – that the global Stop TB campaign need to urgently address to make progress in this area. Number one, the spread of all forms of drug resistance, including extensively drug-resistant TB. Second, the challenges of diagnosing and treating HIV-infected patients with TB. And thirdly, the failure to attract sufficient funding in order to put all necessary control measures in place. The final 15 minutes of this week's podcast features highlights of a media briefing given by the Stop TB Partnership to journalists in London earlier this week. The first voice you will hear is Glenn Thomas from the Stop TB Partnership, outlining how, for the first time, the incidence rate of TB is levelling off. After that, the main voice you will hear is Dr Dermot Mayer from the World Health Organisation. And contributions from Nick Herbert, MP, who chairs an all-party parliamentary group in the UK about TB control.
2: This is the 11th global TB control report and what's um, important about this report is that it's um, detailing the results of the 2005 World Health Assembly targets. Uh, It's actually showing which countries have achieved those targets and what the global target of uh, 70% detection and 85% cure uh, is, what the final target was and also it's um, It's showing for the first time that the global TB epidemic is levelling off for the first time since 1993, when the global health emergency was declared by WHO. Um, Dermot, if you want to explain a bit more the technical detail.
3: Yeah, perhaps first, uh, as far as the targets for 2005 are concerned, um, these global targets were set that the world should try to reach uh, 70% case detection. And eighty-five treatment, eighty-five percent treatment success. So these are uh, minimums. We don't want people to stop. It's only seventy percent. We want them to go on. So at least seventy percent case detection and at least eighty-five percent treatment success. And at the World Health Assembly in May this year, there'll be a final report to the World Health Assembly on what was the stock taking, what was the progress made towards those two targets. And you may say the targets were in two thousand and five. Why are we reporting on the final achievement report in two thousand and seven? Well, there's a lag phase between the cases occurring and being registered and completing their treatment, and then the results of the outcome of treatment being reported within the countries and also to WHO. So on a global level, the report that would be made to the World Health Assembly in May will say that the world managed a treatment, uh, a case detection rate of 60% against the, the, the target of 70%. And as far as the treatment success, the global... Uh, level was 84% against the target of 85%. Reaching those levels of performance means that it's a moment to take stock and to say, well, the world has done quite well, not quite well enough, and what happens next? And what happens next is we now look towards uh, targets for 2015 that have been set by the Stop TB Partnership and that are also in line with the Millennium Development Goals. So we want to try to put the achievement of progress in the field of TB in the wider uh, development context. So this is why we link the TB targets for 2015 with the uh, Millennium Development Goals. When we look at these targets for 2015, we're looking at targets that really reflect what is the impact of TB control measures on the burden of TB. So in fact, there are really uh, three sets of targets for 2015. One is to decrease the incidence, to turn around the incidence of TB that has been uh, up up increasing. And uh, that's in line with the Millennium Development Goal control of HIV, malaria and other diseases. And then the other two targets are to do with uh, halving the prevalence of TB and halving deaths due to TB, measured against the 1990 baseline. For the first time since WHO declared TB a global emergency in 1993, the incident rate seems to be levelling off. We know that TB is a long-haul disease. It's a disease that has been with humanity ever since the dawn of humanity. So TB is really a disease that is part and parcel of humanity, in fact so much a part and parcel of humanity that of course in 90% of people with the organism, the organism is just sitting in the lung and there's no apparent ill effect caused to the person. So the organism has evolved with humanity over such a long period of time that it's reached this point where to a certain extent it's almost a commensal in nine people out of ten with infection. So what we would hope for is that as we continue to intensify the implementation of TB control measures, that we hope over the next 10 years, if we do everything possible, we can start to see the incidence rate coming down and we can start to see this impact that we want to make on the prevalence and the deaths due to TB. This is looking forward to 2015. So this is all the optimistic message. Of course, every time you have some good news, there's always some bad news. And the bad news is that the global burden of TB is still immense, that we have 8.8 million cases of whom 1.6 million people died. And that global burden of TB has got some particular extra challenges. There's the extra challenge of HIV, which has been fueling TB, uh, principally in sub-Saharan Africa, since the start of the HIV epidemic. And then there's also the problem of drug-resistant TB. And drug-resistant TB is a problem that really represents the catch-22 of TB control, that we want to implement effective TB control measures but the catch-22 is that it's no good just doing some TB control you have to do very good TB control because some TB control will start to decrease the deaths due to TB and will start to make some people feel better but it doesn't really cure all the people who are being treated so it's bad news for the individual patients but even worse than that some TB control are not the best TB control is responsible for generating drug-resistant TB. A multi-drug resistant TB is really the last chance saloon. Someone with multi-drug resistant TB, they're very, very difficult to treat. The treatment is lengthier. It's with uh, more drugs. It's with drugs with more side effects. It's a much more expensive treatment, and the outcome isn't so good. If you've got someone with drug-resistant TB, then the last chance saloon. They've got to get very, very good treatment in order to cure them of that drug-resistant TB. We're not only seeing drug-resistant TB now, we're seeing the famous XDR-TB, the extensively drug-resistant TB, and basically that's a death sentence, that for example in South Africa where we've seen XDR-TB in relationship to HIV, then the outbreak that was reported in Tubular Ferry last year had a case fatality rate of 98%. The problem with XDR is probably that uh, we're under-ascertaining the cases because you need a quite a good lab with uh, culture facilities and drug susceptibility testing to be able to detect the the XDR. And uh, the countries with a high TB problem, generally the countries that don't have this laboratory infrastructure to be able to detect the cases. So probably the more we look for this problem, the more we're going to find it. So this uh, particular... Uh, problem in Tugla Ferry in South Africa, this really sort of brought it to global attention. So 35 countries have so far reported XDR TB, which uh, the G8 are included in, in that 35.
0: Isn't one of the problems that historically we've just taken too much of a vertical look at TB <coughs> because it's so intimately linked with HIV, I think you say in your report 11 million people with effects who, have, who are co-infected with HIV and TB. Are we do we need to look at it across the different disease barriers rather than vertically, just focusing on TB both, in terms of WHO and other agencies as well, looking at it?
3: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Of course, TB is one disease amongst many, and at the peripheral level of healthcare provision, then the providers have to provide care for everyone, whether they have TB or malaria or HIV or pneumococcal pneumonia or lung cancer or whatever. So it's a classical question, really, what is the way in which you try to integrate the delivery of care with uh, management systems that may be, uh, to a lesser extent, vertical. So in the TB area, we want to work very closely with the people working on strengthening health systems so that we think that as health systems generally are strengthened, this is going to be a benefit to TB. But also conversely, we think that there are things we are doing in TB that have lessons for the health systems. So, for example, we're promoting an approach called TAO, which stands for Promoting Adult Lung Health. And this is an approach that is really trying to strengthen the way in which patients with respiratory symptoms are dealt with in the first level of care. And the initial impulse from the TB side was that we thought this would be a way of trying to speed up and increase the detection of people with TB amongst people presenting with respiratory symptoms. So this uh, initiative, PAL, is an example of what we can do in the TB field that can help to strengthen health systems. The approach to uh, information gathering in TB is another example of a good approach that we feel could probably uh, have lessons for other areas of disease control we recognise very much the importance of the strong health system to be able to deliver effective health services across the wide range of illnesses, including TB. And we also would like to see some of the practice that we have for TB being held up as an example of how health systems can be strengthened.
0: And do you do that at WHO as well, the departments within WHO? Do you talk to the HIV experts or are you quite separate? the offices for TB and HIV and how you're going to develop policy?
3: Generally, there is a certain amount of dialogue. Of course, it could always be improved between the TB department and other departments. And then there's another department of health system strengthening that does try to bring all of these efforts for different diseases together. As far as the way in which HIV is fueling TB is concerned, what is really important for TB is that if HIV prevention efforts succeed, turning off HIV epidemics is going to have a big impact on, on TB. HIV is fueling TB. If you remove that fuel from the flames, then the fire will start to go down. So all of the efforts of the HIV programs are really important for TB. The more condoms that are used, the more that people have safe sex, the more that uh, STIs are treated, the more that all of these measures are implemented to decrease HIV transmission, well, this will ultimately have an effect in the medium and long term on the extent to which HIV is fueling TB. At the same time, with antiretroviral treatment scale-up, the more that people on a large scale are treated and the more that their immune status returns more or less to normal, then again this will have a huge impact in the medium to long term in turning off the the way in which HIV is fueling the TB epidemic. So basically TB control programs have a huge amount to gain from the bread and butter activities of the HIV programs. The more that the HIV programs succeed in turning off HIV transmission, the more that they succeed in mass application of antiretroviral treatment, the more we'll see a direct impact on the TB epidemic in countries in Africa. At the same time, there are opportunities for interaction between the two programs so that you can get joint activities that are the responsibility of the two programs working together. So typically, for example, one of the things that we want to promote is when TB patients come for diagnosis and treatment of TB, we want to HIV test them. So this is a good opportunity to find out amongst the TB patients who's got HIV. And conversely, when people present with HIV, if they're diagnosed with HIV, they should be screened for TB. So, this is a useful way of mining that seam of undetected TB cases amongst people whose uh, health problems manifested first as being HIV positive.
0: How exactly is the government contributing?
2: Well, the the government contributes uh, not exclusively but principally through through the Global Fund. It's about 100 million a year, and the government argues that its overall commitment is about 5% of the share of the Global Fund, which it argues is its. Fair share. Hillary Benn has issued a statement to coincide with with World TB Day, in which he's made clear that the government will continue to provide funding and call for support from from others.
3: And with the shortfall of thirty one billion, um, how much of that? Who is actually not coughing up? Who should be? <laughs> That's my question. <laughs> who needs to get their money yes. out? Everyone needs to cough up, basically. I mean, what <laughs> Specifically, thing, come on. How much, <laughs> yeah. how much should the UK <laughs> give that it isn't giving it the money? I think we'd have to turn to results to answer that question. But just before we do that, you know, the countries that are implementing TV control, they provide a lot of the resources for TV control themselves, mm. even the relatively poor countries. But of course, they also need to do more. And then the people who fund... TB externally they also need to do more in order to make up that gap.
0: What about leadership at the European level? Germany currently aren't they chairing the EU? What about leadership there?
3: W- yes, we're looking to engage more and more with Germany as they have the GA presidency and the EU presidency. Oh. I think there's a paradox here really, that Germany was the world leader in, in science at the end of the 19th century and the world leader in uh, medicine and uh, specifically in TB it was a leader with uh, the activities of Robert Koch at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and I think Germany probably hasn't yet managed to make as much of a contribution to global TB control.
0: I was under the impression that they, had, they hadn't actually specifically sidelined any money for TB, but it was all going to HIV.
2: The problem is a lot of it goes to the Global Fund. Yeah, yeah so they don't know fungible. how to channel it off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, an example of some of the... Um, need for greater political commitment is the fact that you know, the Coordinating Board in Geneva was originally going to be held in Germany, but we just weren't able to engage with the Germans. Okay, what, um, was to, what was supposed to meet there? Coordinating Board meeting of the TB um, ah. the partnership. There's no guarantees that, that the HIV is on the agenda, but um, we're fighting to try and get TB and XDR-TB especially given the last 12 months with XDRTB in South Africa. There's no sense of a thrust from Germany to actually really clearly state that TB is the priority that um, it should be. Well, I mean, the actual element of the MDRTB, XDRTB... XDRTB is such a new thing since the global plan was originally put in place and uh, was actually launched, and we're now addressing the issues of XDRTB and MDRTB in new identified funding, about $650 million for for this yeah, year. XDR. Yeah. So, um, that's coming from where? So it's not coming from anywhere. Yet. It's, it's, that's uh, what, you think, that's you, what you think we need. That's what you think we need. But the big missing gap then is the
3: TB HIV, though, at the moment. Yeah. We,
2: and specifically, meaning what's there, actually?
3: Well, those are mostly these uh, activities that are represent, uh, that need collaboration between the TB programs and the HIV programs. So, the TB patients coming and looking for HIV testing and the people with HIV who need to be screened for TB.
2: So it's more, it's screening, more monitoring. Well, it's
3: it's a uh, screening. Yeah, we we know that very many of the TB patients have HIV, but they're undetected. So using the presentation of the patient with TB is an opportunity to detect more people with HIV. And conversely, we know that many people with HIV, by the time they present with HIV-related disease, they've got TB.
0: Dermot Maugh from the World Health Organization, concluding this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.